Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the One Woman Book Club podcast. I'm your host, Grace, and this is the podcast where we talk about everything book-related, author-related, all the news and current events that goes along with those things, any life updates from me, specific book and you know author roundups I want to share, and of course, discuss a quarter of our monthly book club pick, which this month has been All the Dangerous Things by Stacey Willingham. This is the final episode of the month of March, so this will be the final discussion of All the Dangerous Things by Stacey Willingham. And I am just so excited to discuss my thoughts because I do have a lot because I absolutely loved this book. I thought it was so good, genuinely really, really hard for me to give a thriller five stars. But for me, this this was five stars. So I'm really excited to get into talking about that with you guys. Um, but before that, I just wanted to share my classic life updates and discuss some other book news before getting into the March Book Club final discussion. I hope you all had a chance to vote on our April Book Club pick last week. I shared on last week's episode the four um, picks that I had chosen for you guys to choose from for the April Book Club pick, and we do have a winner. So I hope you all again had a chance to vote, but if you haven't seen the results, drumroll please. The official April book club pick is Wayward by Amelia Hart. And I am so excited about it. It is mysterious, magical realism, definitely seems like it features some really strong women in this book. So I am just I'm thrilled. So I did want to talk a little bit about that reading schedule for April when the episodes will go up and what you should be reading up to for each episode. Um, Because I know that you guys really like to hear that sort of thing. I posted that on my stories um, on Monday morning, but if you didn't have a chance to see that, it is highlighted in my podcast highlight, though I know that that is getting pretty, pretty full at this point, so I have to figure out a different solution probably, Um, but I will be sharing it in feed at some point this week. I'm pretty sure I have a little post idea for that, so it will be in feed as well, so you can always reference it, but it might be easy as well just to to screenshot that on my podcast highlight. So um, again, I don't know if I've made this clear at this point. I'm very sure all of you are following me at this point, but if you're not, my Instagram is Grace's Reading Nook, and that's where we vote on everything, where I talk about everything book-related even further sometimes than I do on the podcast. I am always on there, but let's Let's talk the reading schedule for Wayward. So episode one will be up on April 3rd, Monday, April 3rd. And for that, you're going to read up to chapter 14. Episode two will be up on April 10th. And that for that episode, you will read up to chapter 25. 
for episode three. That'll be out on April 17th. And for that episode, please read up to chapter 37. And episode four will be out the week of April 24th. The exact episode date is to be determined. If you didn't listen last week, I talked about I'm going on vacation on April 17th and I'll be back on the 24th. So maybe I'll be able to pre-record a little bit. But for the last episode, I really like to have my organic thoughts. So it's hard. I always stay with the reading schedule just because I know if I read ahead, I will end up spoiling something or it won't be as organic on the podcast. So that'll be up later in the week. So episode four for the last week of April, sometime that final week of April 24th. And for that one, you just finish the book super easy. So again, that'll be on my Instagram later this week, but I am so, so excited to read Wayward. I'll save you guys from me reading the synopsis again, because I know that can get kind of long winded. And I talked about it not only on the podcast episode last week, but also, um, on my Instagram. So I think a lot of you are really excited about this one, which is awesome. I know Mame by Jessica George was genuinely a close second, um, as was Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting. Side note, I know that I was pronouncing it Iona Aversions in last week's episode. And then I looked at the cover again and I was like, oh my God, it's 1000% Iona Aversions. I almost said it again. It's 1000% Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting. But that's okay. We all make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. So um, it seemed like everyone really liked the choices this month. So I'm glad about that. And next month, we can go back to involving a thriller, which I know will make a lot of you guys happy too. But I did get many a message genuinely from people that said they were happy that it wasn't another thriller for this month or that I didn't include a thriller choice because that's not something they typically read. So I was really happy that you guys were also happy about that choice to not include a thriller since we'd done two. I'm personally also really excited and a little bit nervous for it not to be a thriller because I find that thrillers, they really lend themselves for discussion like this. Like there were always so many theories to discuss and, you know, motives. And it was just, it's fun to talk about a mystery and try to solve it on the podcast. But this is really going to test like how much I'll be able to talk about a book since I've only ever done two months of this, eight episodes, um, and it's all been thrillers. I'm excited to see what talking points I can come up with for the podcast that isn't trying to dissect a crime. So I'm really excited. So I'm going to start reading that this week. And again, for next week's episode, just read up to chapter 14. And in good life-related news, I know so many of you will be happy to hear, mostly for the fact that I will stop talking about it, but my passport was finally approved and arrived last Thursday. So that was obviously what was causing a lot of my stress and my worry. But sometimes in my mind, like I do struggle like with anxiety. When one thing starts worrying me, then I just spiral and start worrying about like everything else in my life. So once that was solved, I was like, oh my God, I can finally like take a deep breath and just start getting excited about my vacation. Um, going to Punta Cana on April 17th. So I'm just really excited about that and preparing. I have been shopping so much and figuring out what books I should bring on this vacation. Now, I don't know how much reading I'll genuinely be getting done. A lot of friends are going with us because we're going for another friend's wedding. 
So I think there's going to be a lot of like talking and, you know, just having fun and going on excursions and everything with each other. But I'm hoping there's going to be a decent amount of downtime um, to lay by the pool or lay on the beach and read some beach reads. I am so sad that I don't have the copy of Happy Place by Emily Henry. I know a lot of people got that as an advanced reader copy, mostly um, digitally. And I don't have an e-reader, so I don't actually request ARCs like via Netflix gallery or anything, which I know is something I'm kind of behind on as a bookstagrammer. But it's just not something that I typically do or really ever do. I do have a NetGalley account, but it's not something I I'm actively like promoting or requesting arcs on. So maybe that's something I should I should work on for 2023. But I don't. So all the arcs that I get are just like physical copies. But I am wanting to bring some beach reads physically just in my checked bag. And I probably will want to bring like three. Like I feel like I'll limit myself to three. So I'll definitely unless I can finish it before my trip, which I don't think I should just because of how the podcast works. Like I've said, I will be bringing our April book club pick wayward along on the journey with me. Um, and that'll be a really easy like 80 pages to fly through like on the plane or or something like that. So I'm excited to bring that one with me. And then other than that, I'm looking at my shelf as we speak. And I have had a lot of beach reads on my shelf that I just have never read. Um, Because I I just I'm a huge mood reader. And sometimes I'm just not in the mood for a summer read even when it's summer. But I'm dying to read a Catherine St. John book. So either the Siren or the Lion's Den, both of those have been calling my name for so long. The Siren even more so. I've heard it's like a mystery almost version of The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. So that is my number one book I do want to bring on vacation. Let me read you guys a little bit about what that one's about in case you are also going on vacation soon and would potentially want to read it. So yep, this is by Catherine St. John. It was published in 2021 and it came out after The Lion's Den. So let me read you a little bit of the Goodreads synopsis. In the midst of a sizzling hot summer, some of Hollywood's most notorious faces are assembled on the idyllic Caribbean island of St. Genesius to film The Siren, starring dangerously handsome megastar Cole Power playing opposite his ex-wife Stella Rivers. The surefire blockbuster promises to entice audiences with its sultry storyline and intimately connected cast. Three very different women arrive on set, each with their own motive. Stella, an infamously unstable actress, is struggling to reclaim the career she lost in the wake of multiple, very public breakdowns. Taylor, a fledging producer, is anxious to work on a film she hopes will turn her career around after her last job ended in a scandal. And Felicity, Stella's mysterious new assistant, harbors designs of her own that threaten to upend everyone's plans. With a hurricane brewing offshore, each woman finds herself trapped on the island, united against a common enemy. But as deceptions come to light, misplaced trust may prove more perilous than the storm itself. So it just sounds really good, really juicy, really scandalous. Like I love a Hollywood drama like that. So I think that one will be perfect. So I'm definitely going to bring that one. I was also thinking about bringing The Soulmate by Sally Hepworth. Um, I've already read the synopsis of that, so I won't do that here. Um, It's a few episodes back, I believe, when I was talking about what I got in my book of the month. So maybe the first episode of this month. Um, It sounds like a really good thriller for vacation. And it's just something I think I would really enjoy. And genuinely, that might be all I bring. I'm also thinking about Potentially Big Summer by Jennifer Weiner, Float Plan by Trish Holler, The Jet Setters by Amanda Iyer Ward, or even The Kiss Quotient by Helen Huang. Like, 
there's so many good ones that I have that I have been wanting to read throughout the summers, but just have never like prioritized them because I really like almost like a deeper read. Like I really like emotional stories, which I'll get into in a second. Um, but I think for vacation, I don't want anything too heart wrenching. I want to keep it very, very surface level fun and easy to read. So I do want to talk about Betty by Tiffany McDaniel, because I did finish that this week and I'm struggling a little bit with my star rating. So I gave it four stars. And at this point, I am sticking with the four stars, um, mainly because it was just it was so, so difficult to read. I'm going to read you guys what I wrote on Goodreads as my review because I really stand by what I said. It was just so emotionally draining. Like, it was really, really hard for me to pick it up and, like, know what I was about to read was going to be incredibly traumatizing and, like, disturbing and terrible. But the writing of the book was incredible. And the moments of levity that you did get with her and her sisters or her and her father, if you've read the book, you understand what I'm saying, were incredible. But other than that, it was a really hard read. So I'm going to read you guys my review of this that I wrote on Goodreads, mostly because I I stand by it. And I wrote this immediately after I finished. And you can kind I don't have any spoilers in this. So um, if you if this sounds like a book for you, like, it's really hard for me to recommend it. Like I had someone um, talk to me or message me about it after I finished and said this was five stars for me. And I recommend it to everyone. And while I understand like this book, I think will speak to a lot of people. And I think a lot of people would really like it. I just I literally like don't feel like I can recommend it to anyone because it's so heavy. So I said, I don't even know where to begin with writing a review for this one. I just finished and I really don't know how to feel. In many ways, I really loved this book, which is why it's four stars. The characters felt incredibly real and rich. I loved how beautiful the writing was. And overall, it just felt incredibly authentic and truly heartbreaking. I know it's a story that will stick with me forever. And as I sit on it, it may even be closer to five stars than four. However, this is also one of the hardest books I've ever read. I don't get triggered by too many things while reading but the scenes in this book really affected me. Please, please look up trigger warnings before reading this book because it is incredibly heavy and disturbing. There was very little levity in the story. So many truly terrible things kept happening to Betty and her family. It was very hard to read. The levity and love emanated from Landon and his love for his children. I also love the bond and strength felt between Freya, Fosse, and Betty. Although the family was experiencing such extreme hardship and pain at every turn, watching the sisters grow up together was truly special. You can't forget about Linton Treston either. Their additions to the story were bittersweet and heartwarming all at once. I can't recommend this book to anyone because I really don't know if the vast majority of people would enjoy it. Because truthfully, it wasn't fun to read this book. It was emotionally draining, infuriating, and heartbreaking all at once. But at the same time, the immense love you did feel between these family members, the resilience of Betty and her family, family and their overwhelming love for nature and the world around them was incredibly powerful to read about. It is truly unlike any book I've ever read and one I will never forget. Stand by everything. I don't even feel the need to like elaborate that much more on it, except for it really will always stick with me. And I read a lot of really dark, dreary, emotional books that are really heavy, But I will say there is just something about the language that's used in this one. And I think maybe it also has to do with the fact that it's mostly a true story or at least, you know, stems from true events of the author Tiffany McDaniel's mother, Betty. It was really, really difficult. And I can't imagine anyone having to go through what Betty Carpenter did or what her family really had to endure. 
that if you've read this, I'd really like to talk about it with you. But if you haven't, just look up the trigger warnings and it might be for you if you like a heavy book like that. But again, don't really want to fully like recommend it per se. Right now I am reading If We're Being Honest by Kat Shook. I just started it and it's an arc. I was sent by Celadon Books, who I, I love Celadon Books. They're amazing. And I'm, I only have read up to like page 30. And so far, there's a lot of characters, like a little bit confusing. But it's basically about a family attending their grandfather's funeral. He was like the patriarch of the family. And it's about like four cousins and their parents um, in dealing with their grandfather's death. But something really kind of salacious was revealed at his funeral. And they're all kind of like reeling from it. So that's really where I'm at right now. And I've heard really good things. And I also just finished up a giveaway of that book on my page. So super excited. Um, Thank you so much to Celadon Books. And another thanks goes out to Celadon Books because they also sent me an arc of Tracy Lang's new novel, The Connollys of County Down. And she is the author of We Are the Brennans. And I'm actually doing like a buddy read. They set it up so you are reading the book alongside and like almost like a little book club similar to this one with a few other bookstagrammers. So I'm really excited about that. And I'm also going to be starting that this week. So we have Wayward, we have the Connollys of County Down, and we have If We're Being Honest that I am reading this week. So three books at once, which, which is not like me, but I am excited about all of them. And that's really all I wanted to talk about before we get into the discussion of All the Dangerous Things by Stacey Willingham. And super exciting, Stacey actually agreed to answer some questions for us via email. So I, I'm going to read her answers verbatim after I talk about my final thoughts on the book. But let's just go ahead and get right into that. I am going to go chapter by chapter, even though we all should have finished the book by this point. I do want to talk about what I was thinking like each chapter. I loved the ending. I thought it was so good. So again, if you have not finished the book, don't listen to this. Um, if you don't want spoilers, because we are going to be spoiling a lot of things or really the whole book at this point. But if you don't care or you have finished, keep on listening. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. 
and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So for chapter 47, the first thing I said was, I hate that I have to take notes right now because I was just dying to know what happened next. I said, I'm audibly screaming, needing to know what happens next. No, I wasn't like screaming, but I was like, oh my God, I need to know. I don't want to write anything. Um, This is the chapter that Isabel decided to stay for dinner and sleep over at her parents' house. Her mom tells her she loves her and it's a reconciliation of sorts. And she's feeling really good about her relationship with her parents at this point. When her parents are asleep, she goes upstairs to her mom's old painting room and starts kind of like digging around and looking around. She finds the painting she saw when she was a little girl, which she thought was of her at the marsh. But now there are two other girls surrounding her and she realizes it wasn't her in the painting at all. And the girl in the painting is wearing a robe, not a nightgown. And chapter 48, the first thing I wrote was we were right. One of you said that you thought Margaret's doll Ellie was a third sister that was dead and you nailed it. Like, don't even know, like it was so subtle. So I said all of those subtle clues, all of those subtle cues. So bravo, honestly, like, I don't know if I would have gotten there. It was so subtle when her mom would just be like, oh, like, I love all of you girls. And Margaret would be like, even Ellie, like, don't forget about Ellie. And the mom, like, slightly frowned or something. But you really picked up on that. So good job. Um, I did guess that Isabel saw her mom having a miscarriage. Not that these are fun things, obviously, to celebrate in any way. But it is a it, but it is fun when a twist is this good and you guess them. So I feel, feel like we got to pat ourselves on the back a little bit. So really, really interesting and heartbreaking, obviously, twist. This is also a hard chapter because Isabel is remembering what happened and she realizes that she had blocked out Eloise, like in the whole miscarriage, really. She really didn't even remember that that happened because there was so much trauma surrounding it. She mentioned how hard it must have been for her mother to hear Margaret talk about Eloise all the time. And now I'm wondering if a resentment almost formed. Her mother mentioned she was very sick and she was afraid to be left alone with the girls. So I was right. I talked about the mom having a mental illness um, that wasn't like diagnosed or that she wasn't getting help for. And that was definitely the case. So super sad. In chapter 49, I said, wow. We get the confession from Isabel's mother that she killed Margaret, but she says it wasn't about Margaret, that she was very mentally ill and she wanted all of them to die, including the father. She wanted just the whole family to die. Um, She tried to leave the gas on the stove on overnight and kill them that way, but instead the house was set on fire. And she also asked their father for help, but he just blatantly said no. Like he didn't want it to get out into the public that his wife was mentally ill at all since he had, you know, such a strong presence in the community. And then Isabel says it's always so easy to blame the mother. And there is that theme again that is just so prevalent throughout this book. The mother just clearly had extreme postpartum depression and intrusive thoughts, but no one helped her. And the father, even though she asked for help, wasn't willing to help her. It's just it's genuinely like incredibly sad and heartbreaking that it got to the point of killing Margaret. Her father said he had to keep up appearances and still her mother got no help. So I just feel a really just it's a terrible situation all around. Um, and the, the fact that these things genuinely happen in real life, too, is just it's awful. So I felt really bad for Margaret. And I honestly also truly feel bad for the mother and Isabel because she thought it was her this whole time. 
Chapter 50, everything was put into place for Isabel and she's on her way home. I was totally wrong and I can admit that for sure about Isabel's mom taking Mason and even at chapter 50, I knew that for a fact. And I kind of was mad at myself for going there and blaming the mother when the whole theme was to kind of like look deeper and realize that like moms are put under this pressure and have this mom guilt all the time. So I'm kind of like sad that I went that way, but I think it you were kind of like led that way by Stacey Willingham to think that the mom must have done something like to Mason. I, I I feel like that was a very common theory. And a lot of you guys did back me up on that on Instagram. But still, it's it's pretty sad. Um, you know, I read so many books about twisted parents that it kind of seemed like it was going in that direction. And I again, I said, I'm sure Stacey Willingham did that on purpose. Isabel realizes her mother didn't want to hold Mason when he met when she met him because she didn't feel worthy enough to be a mother to Isabel um, because she felt so bad about what happened with her miscarriage with Eloise and of course about killing Margaret. Her father knew all along that her mother had killed Margaret, and she also suspects the police did too. But again, he wanted to keep up appearances for the Rett family name, and just everyone went along with it, which is crazy. I genuinely feel awful for Isabel's mother. That just made me realize that Mason's disappearance had to be caused in some way by Ben. Chapter 51, I said, oh my fucking goodness. I truly audibly gasped, have full chills and shouted, oh my God, multiple times throughout this chapter. Guys, none of us saw this coming. I was blown away by this twist. We were so, so, so close to figuring it out, but none of us that messaged me put the pieces together of this one. So first of all, we learned that Isabel's mother had postpartum psychosis and that it can be passed down to generations. But again, just made that mistake once with Isabel's mom, with Mason. I'm not feeling like that's Isabel's case. Then she starts to think about Ben in the day they kissed at Allison's memorial. She realizes the man that called Ben back inside was Waylon because she recognizes his voice. That was already enough. And we're left thinking, how the fuck does Waylon know Ben? Are they in this together trying to frame Isabel for Mason's disappearance? That is until Isabel realizes why Waylon started all of this podcast stuff. His sister's murder. His sister, Allison. Waylon and Allison, Ben's ex-wife who died, they were siblings. My mind was genuinely blown. I was like, I did not see that coming whatsoever. Let me know if you did. She realizes he also believes that Ben had something to do with Allison's death. And that's how he guessed suicide earlier because he already knew all about it. Remember when I said Waylon and, you know, Isabel were talking about like Allison, like Ben's ex-wife, and all of a sudden, he goes like suicide. That's how she died. Like before Isabel even like gave up any information about her death. So I found that weird, but that totally makes sense. In chapter 52, Isabel is Googling Ben and Waylon's names together and ends up finding photos of their wedding with Waylon in it. And of course, in Allison's obituary, she knows for sure now that Waylon and Allison were siblings. Personally, when he was talking, and I think this is we were meant to think this, when he was talking about his sister's murder, I think we all just assumed that it was like of a younger, like either a teenager or a child, just because we were kind of already dealing with like a child disappearance and child murder. So the fact that Allison was like an adult just blew my mind. Like I did not see that coming at all. 
So Isabel calls him and the first thing she asks is if he thought that she killed Mason and he seems shocked by this and says, no, of course not. So she and all of us had gotten it wrong all along and he was trying to pin everything on Ben, not her. Then at the end of the chapter, Waylon says he knows that Ben killed Allison. In chapter 53, we get a flashback to when Ben and Isabel first had Mason. Also, Isabel said that Ben had been excited by finding out Isabel was pregnant, but her but her having Mason stopped her from working. So she needed more in her life and she applied to a freelance gig. And after talking to Ben, she decided to take it. Ben said, whatever makes you happy as he took Mason into the hallway. So at this point I said, oh my God, what did he do to him? I just hope he's still alive. So obviously Ben has immense resentment for Isabel. You know, he never wanted a child to begin with. And now she's going and taking this job. And he's like, well, great. Now I have to deal with Mason. Just obviously disgusting. Like I just needed to know what happened next. In chapter 54, Waylon and Isabel meet at a coffee shop where they know Ben won't be. Then Waylon tells her everything he knows, that Allison and Ben met in high school and all throughout their relationship, even though Allison had dreams of her own, Ben made her follow him. Classic. So to school, to not work, etc. Allison's sparkle just completely died down and really off. Then Waylon says he saw Isabel and Ben at the bar that day and or one of the days that we were together. And that's when he took the picture that Isabel found on his laptop. But he doesn't blame her because she was young and he said that Ben does that to everyone. He's just has that way of sweeping people up and under his spell. We learn that Isabel did take that big job and continue to take more freelance gigs throughout the country and continue to travel and write, though she could tell that Ben was getting annoyed and frustrated with her. He had never wanted children. Then we get the bombshell that Allison got pregnant and two weeks later, she was dead. In chapter 55, Allison thinks back to the moment she realizes she was pregnant and she realized that she felt that pang of regret because she didn't know if she wanted to be tied to Ben forever, not that she was regretful about being pregnant. Um, And now she realized by being pregnant, she would be tied to Ben forever in some way, obviously, because they had a child together. She later thinks, did Ben feel the same way when Allison told him she was pregnant, which is an interesting thought. We know that he didn't want to be tied to Allison. He already wanted Isabel at that point. Waylon knows his sister would never have overdosed while she was pregnant, so he just knows that Ben did something to kill her. Isabel realizes that Ben has always been in control and never just let things happen to him. Waylon admits he saw them kissing at the memorial, and it was all confirmed for him. He had killed Allison so he could be with Isabel. Then Isabel asks, why Mason? And Waylon says, how bad would it look to have two wives commit suicide? And she realizes he never wanted to be a father. He really, especially wouldn't want to be a single father. He already hated when she went away on work trips. So that's just another point. And then what about the old man on the porch? Who did he see walking around and with Mason on the last night? I literally said this here. I said, could it have been Ben's new girlfriend, Valerie? Does she live close by and took walks at night? Was she in on this all along? So guys, I did guess it. Even though this is literally revealed in the next chapter, I did write that down and guess it before it was revealed. So I was pretty proud of myself. Then for chapter 56, I said, Isabel goes to Ben's house and then follows Valerie to her own house. She knocks on the door and asks to come inside. At first, Valerie says she should leave, but Isabel convinces her. Just like Isabel would have answered the door for Allison, Valerie answers the door for Isabel. 
Chapter 57, I wrote, OMG, I got it. I guessed Valerie two chapters ago, so I do feel pretty good about that. What an amazing twist. So Isabel goes in and wants to warn Valerie about Ben and how crazy he is and to get away from him. So she's like literally on Valerie's side at this point. But Valerie isn't seeing it and is instead blaming Isabel for being insane and that she needs to get professional help. Isabel is not buying it anymore. She then looks at some pictures around Valerie's house and finds out that Valerie and Ben have been together for two years, not just a few months, like they said, since Mason was six months and she started going on those work trips. Ben brought her to the house. She was around Mason. And that's when she realizes that Mason had to be gone before he started talking and could talk to Isabel about the woman in the house. That's when Isabel realizes that Valerie herself did something to Mason. Valerie wanted to be Isabel. She was picturing them together and couldn't take that jealousy. It was very easy for her to pretend to be Isabel Drake on a walk with Mason. Chapter 58, Valerie admits she did do something to Mason, but won't say what. She even says, Isabel, he's in a better place. So we know that she was the one who commented. Ben had given her a key so she could go right into the house. Roscoe didn't bark because he knew Valerie. She took Mason and he felt comfortable with her, so he didn't cry. She says that they didn't want to be parents, that they weren't fit for it, but she won't say where he is. Then they get into a physical fight and Isabel hears a skull crack. And at that point, we don't know if it's her own skull cracking or Valerie's. In chapter 59, it's two days later, we learn that Isabel killed Valerie. Dozier comes over to Isabel's to tell her and it seems like he's going to frame her for the murder, but then he doesn't. He says, this is where like it all kind of comes together that a man at the vigil from the beginning of the book was a client of Valerie's because remember, she ran that grief support group and saw Isabel go to the grief support group that night. Then he realized that another woman who used to attend that same group went missing right after Mason's disappearance. And he realized something wasn't adding up. So he called the tip line with the name Abigail Fisher. Valerie had said to Isabel that there were so many people who would love to have a child. And that's when it really all clicks into place for Isabel. Then she confronts all the lists and the photos that she's been keeping from the true crime conferences, and she realizes that Abigail Fisher was an attendee of True Crime Con. And not just that, but she was the woman mouthing the words to her story as she spoke from the first chapter, the one in the photograph of the news story. Just so, so crazy. Chapter 60 is one week later, and Isabel goes to visit Ben in prison. She is the one who put him there. She framed Ben for Valerie's murder. She left the wedding ring from around her neck at the scene of the crime, and it was extremely easy to convict him because of that. And I just love the ending of this. So we realize that Ben never actually killed anyone. He just had the right words and made everyone do what he wanted. By having the affair with Isabel and making her hate herself and her life, Allison took the pills to kill herself so Ben could escape. He complained about Mason so much to Valerie and told her that the baby monitor's batteries were dead and that Isabel was an unfit mother, so Valerie took Mason away. Isabel says, and I quote, Ben has always known that you don't have to pull the trigger to get away with murder. Sometimes all you need to do is load the gun and let it go off on its own. Love that. Chapter 61 is the epilogue. Waylon and Isabel finish the podcast and truly everything is how it should be. Isabel knows that Dozier most likely knows that she killed Valerie, but he won't say a word. He was always on her side the whole time and always suspected Ben. That's why he was always interviewing her. 
Valerie had given Mason to Abigail Fisher in the middle of the night, but then Abigail was racked with guilt when she realized Isabel wasn't an unfit mother at all and wanted nothing more than to have Mason back. And Isabel got him back, which is just a crazy end to a thriller because it never ends that good. So I said, wow, what a book. I 100% give this five stars and it's nearly the perfect thriller for me. Never once boring, always truly thrilling, characters you couldn't trust, notes on bigger subjects than just a typical thriller. I was blown away by some of the twists and I absolutely loved the ending. I truly love the author's note of this book and I never read them. So I do want to read it here because I feel like it says a lot about the overarching themes throughout this book. Stacey Willingham says, If you haven't made it to the end of the story yet, I ask that you stop reading this now and finish first. What comes next will surely spoil everything. Before this book existed on paper and it was still just an idea in my head, the idea was basically this. What would it feel like to be trapped inside the mind of a sleep-deprived mother who deep down believed that the disappearance of her child was somehow her fault? When I started wondering why she would believe that, it hit me like a truck. It's because mothers and honestly women in general are conditioned from birth to feel guilty about something. We always think things are our fault. We always feel the need to apologize for being too much or too little, too loud or too quiet, too driven or too content, for wanting children more than anything or for not even wanting them at all. I won't lie to you. I was afraid to write a book about motherhood without first being a mother myself. I make some strong statements in this novel, and I was worried about making those statements without coming from a place of personal experience. There are many things about motherhood that I simply cannot understand, and in those instances, I relied heavily on research as well as speaking to friends and family members who are mothers to help me sort through it all. And while I acknowledge that there are certain emotions and experiences that I cannot fully appreciate yet, I also believe that every woman can understand the unspoken expectations of it, the weight of motherhood that seems to be ever present throughout our entire lives from the very moment we're given our first doll. Not only that, but because of the judgment that emanates from others once we make a decision of our own, oftentimes we feel like we can't even talk about it. We feel completely alone in an experience that's shared by so many. When I came to that realization, I just wanted to stuff this book full of different types of women, flawed, complicated, messy women who will surely draw scorn for their various decisions. But really, that's the point. Isabel is, in many ways, my attempt at showcasing the damage societal pressures and expectations can have on a single person. Is she the perfect mother? No. And does she make mistakes? Yes. She struggles, as do all mothers, and feels extreme guilt over thoughts and emotions that she doesn't even know are normal. But how could she know if nobody ever talks about it? Despite it all, though, she loves her son fiercely. However, that love will never be enough to save her in the court of public opinion, or even in her own mind for that matter. So accustomed is she to absorbing everyone else's blame. When it comes to Isabel's mother, I tried to tread lightly and respectfully on a topic so fragile. I did a lot of research on postpartum psychosis, and the character of Elizabeth was informed in large part by Andrea Yates. The more I read about her, the more her actions shifted in my mind from horrifying to heartbreaking. She was a mother at the end of her mental rope. She asked for help, never received it, and was villainized for what happened as a result. Of course, what she did was both tragic and terrifying, but at the same time, it could have been avoided too if only the mental health of mothers wasn't something we so easily shrugged off or pretended not to notice. The same can be said for Elizabeth. Allison, Valerie, Casey, and Abigail are also women in the story with complicated relationships that led to their own varying decisions, good and bad, right and wrong, but mostly I think somewhere in the murky middle. 
in real life, we are so rarely afforded the luxury of things being in simple black and white. So, so I try to stay true to that in my stories too, by making each character as multifaceted as possible. For that reason, I hope they inspire some enlightening conversations, or at the very least, gave you an entertaining read. Finally, if you're concerned about your own mental health or the mental health of a loved one, please know that there are resources available to help. A good place to start would be the National Institute of Mental Health website, www.nimh.nih.gov slash health slash find dash help. I just think that is literally perfect. And I don't even have much more to say because she literally says it all. I personally did pick up on, on Elizabeth being modeled after the Andrea Yates case. Both Elizabeth and Andrea Yates went to their husbands and tried to ask for help, but never received it. That doesn't make the case any less heartbreaking or terrifying, but it just further goes to show the emotional reality that can sometimes come with being a mother. So this book was literally a true, true five-star read for me. I absolutely loved it. And actually on Monday, I shared my full review on Instagram as well. I literally think this was the perfect, perfect thriller. Um, I just, I really love the overarching theme of the pressure society puts on women and mothers. Um, It was just really fascinating and really heartbreaking to read about. So I absolutely loved it. And I know so many of you read along with us for this um, month's book club, and I am just so happy that you guys loved it too. Now, I did get some questions from you all to ask Stacey Willingham, which I did, and I want to share those responses now. So I am just so excited that she wanted to answer these questions for us. Like, how cool is that? So first of all, someone asked, did you know all along how the book would end? And she said, for the most part, yes. I always surprise myself with an extra twist or two when I'm writing. But before I sit down to start a new book, I usually know what the major twist and ending will be, which is really interesting because it really differed from Mary Kubica's answer when I asked her that on last month's episode. And she said that it usually just comes naturally to her as she's writing. So it's really interesting that Stacey Willingham has kind of a different approach and both are such incredible thriller authors. Question two was how much research went into sleep deprivation and sleepwalking? Is it close to home? And she says, quite a bit of research. I'm something of an insomniac myself, and it can take me a very long time to fall asleep at night. But my husband, on the other hand, falls asleep so quickly and so deeply that he'll sometimes start to talk. On one particular night, I had been awake for hours when he sat up, turned on the light, looked at me and said, she needs to see where she's going. Totally asleep. Of course, it was creepy, and that conjured up some very vivid images of a sleepwalking woman, as well as got me thinking a lot about the juxtaposition between deep sleep and sleep deprivation. They are so different, but if either gets bad enough, they can both lead to serious issues. From there, I've researched a lot of real-life cases related to sleepwalking and sleep deprivation, as well as did some research on how sleep deprivation is used as a form of criminal torture in the CIA, and what some of the major side effects were for prisoners who went through that. I love to hear about that research. It was totally prevalent. You could definitely see that it was well-researched. And it would not surprise me if I she had said that she did sleepwalk or suffer from insomnia herself, which she kind of did. Um, so really, really interesting. Question three was, do you ever take inspiration from real events or people for your books? And she said, yes, almost always. However, I never use real events or people in their entirety. Usually a person or an event somehow piques my interest. Then after thinking about it for a while, I come up with a new point of view or what if question that I want to explore, which then turns into the story or character. 
Question four was, where do you get your ideas? And she said, from all over the place. They'll sometimes come to me when reading the news or watching a documentary or even just seeing something eye-catching or unusual while I'm out walking in my neighborhood. If a topic is somehow interesting to me, I tend to obsess over it same, fall down rabbit holes and generally pick it apart until a new point of view or unique twist on that topic comes to mind, which I'll then ruminate on some more until I have a firm character and plot in place. Question five is, is your process from twist to beginning or beginning to twist? And she said, I always know the main twist before I sit down and start writing, but never much that happens in the middle. So I start at the beginning, knowing what the twist will eventually be and make up the story as I go to get there. The final question is, what is next for you? Do you have a book in the works? And do you think you'll always stick to thrillers? And she said, for the time being, I'm sticking with thrillers. My third book, another psychological thriller, will be out early next year. I can't share much about it yet, but keep your eye on my Instagram over the next few months for a title, cover reveal, synopsis, and more. I'm in the research phase for my fourth book right now too, which will be out in 2025. So she is just working like crazy. And I have to say, I read her book, A Flicker in the Dark, which was nominated as a book of the year for book of the month last year. And absolutely loved that one as well. So this is your first Stacey Willingham book. You should absolutely also read A Flicker in the Dark. It was so good, so inventive, and so, so crazy. So that is the end of our March book club. I hope you all enjoyed reading along with this one. I love that it was nearly the perfect thriller for me. And I know so many of you also loved it. And I am just so excited to start reading Wayward by Amelia Hart for next week's episode. And that is the end of today's podcast episode and the end of All the Dangerous Things by Stacey Willingham. I hope you all enjoyed and start reading Wayward up to chapter 14 for next week. I hope you all have a lovely week. Thank you so much for listening and I will talk to you all in the next episode. Bye guys. We have to try to find ways to find peace and art and love and connection in the midst of the chaos of life. So that's life writing. I am so excited to have comic and daily show correspondent Roy Wood Jr. Well, hello. That joke was birthed from my trip to the African-American Smithsonian in DC which that was the first time I saw something where, all right, on this floor, it's nothing but good news. Mm. We've gone through slavery, we've gone through desegregation and emancipation proclamation and reconstruction, but on this floor, Beyonce, Michael Jordan, Issa Rae. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Come and join us on Life Writing for more stories like these and the tools writers need to make yourself the hero or heroine of the adventure of your life. Life Writing is available wherever you get your podcasts.